This is a 3CR Community Radio podcast, 3cr.org.au. You're about to hear the Wednesday Breakfast Show from the 21st of February 2018. And uh, I'm Judith, and uh, coming up later in the show, we're going to be speaking to Professor Samantha Hepburn. She's the Director of the Centre for Energy and Natural Resources Law at Deakin University, and she's written an article on the shortcomings in environmental approvals in Australia, with particular reference to the proposed Adani uh, joining us in the studio a bit later on will be Jane from the Vixen Collective, a peer-based sex worker organisation uh, for Victorian sex workers, to talk to us a little bit about a organisation called Project Respect, which um, uh, sort of sounds like it says the opposite of what it actually does. Uh, also, we will have uh, Fiona Patton from the Reason Party, also a member of the Legislative Council uh, in the studio, to talk to us um, about religion and uh, getting tough on crime in a unique way, yes. in a very Fiona way. <laughs> in a very Fiona way. And also we'll be speaking to Jamie Gardner. Uh, he's one of the vice presidents of Liberty Victoria, and they've written a submission to the recent inquiry, actually to a couple of inquiries into religious freedom. So he's going to tell us where the most recent one has come from and something about the idea of religious freedom in Australian law. And if you're missing Paddy's voice uh, this morning, uh, unfortunately he couldn't be with us this morning. He ate a foul sausage roll. It happens to us all sometimes, and it's no good, so uh, I'm sure he'll be better for our next episode. Please enjoy this 3CR Community Radio podcast of Wednesday Breakfast from the 21st of February 2018. Radio, 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 radio. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, yeah. to 8.30am. Good morning. It is Wednesday, the 21st of February, uh, here with uh, Nick and Judith. We're yes, good morning, everyone. Missing a Paddy this morning. He's, yeah, uh, he's not well. Ate a feral sausage roll. Oh, my God. That's Avoid those sausage rolls. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paddy, if you're listening, we hope your uh, tummy is feeling a bit better. Yeah. Um, so, we do have a pretty jam-packed program, and hopefully um, we do have an interview that Paddy has organised, because we, we there's three of us in here. We all organise um, little bits and pieces, uh, and that's how the show comes comes together, um, and sometimes we feral sausage rolls and yes. <laughs> have the same bed. So. Yeah, so we will be speaking to Warren Roberts around 7.30 from the Yarn Project. And uh, after 8 o'clock, if you stick around for that long, we'll be catching up with uh, Jane from the Vixen Collective talking about an organisation called, well, they're called Project Respect, but Jane said she prefers the term Project Disrespect. Uh, and we'll hear about exactly why she prefers that term after 8 o'clock. And uh, also after 8 o'clock, we'll be getting the latest twist in the Adani saga, in particular the shortcomings in environmental approvals, and that will be from Professor Sam Hepburn from the Deakin School of Law. Uh, before we get to 8 o'clock, though, we'll be uh, having uh, Fiona Patton from the Reason Party, Yay. also a member of Parliament, mm-hmm. uh, in the studio to talk to us a little bit uh, about um, her party's uh, policies on uh, taxation of religious organisations. Specifically, now, now this is and this is where we want to um, drill down on uh, what. It's what they're specifically talking about because it's a policy that attracts a lot of um, um, bad attention from people when they go, well, hang on, but churches do all sorts of charitable things and, and that's exactly what is not being talked about. If, a, if an organisation 
that happens to be religious, also happens to do really fantastic charitable work, then of course they should be doing that charitable work. The problem yeah. is that they get tax exemption for doing, uh, for, for just promoting their religion. Um, I see. Well, we're going to be talking also to, um, Jamie Gardner, who's from Liberty Victoria, and we are going to be talking about religious freedoms and, uh, religious benefits, or the benefits, I guess, that, uh, some religions get. So. We've sort of inadvertently, um, put together a bit of a, a bit of a civil liberties show, haven't we? <laughs> well, that's in there for sure. Yes. Uh, heading for a top of 30 degrees again today, partly cloudy, 28 and cloudy on Thursday and Friday, 31 degrees, possible showers, Saturday showers and 25, which of course is the day that I've got to spend all day outside. Typical. <laughs> oh, that it's it's yeah. about three, three minutes past seven. Of course, the weather isn't always correct. Maybe, maybe, those, maybe those showers <laughs> will hold. Yeah. What you got for us, uh, Judith? Well, um, you'll all be aware, I'm sure, that uh, there was an overwhelming vote in favour of marriage equality last year. And uh, soon after that, uh, Prime Minister Turnbull ordered an inquiry to see whether Australian law adequately protects the human right to freedom of religion. Now, interestingly, this is the third similar, I won't say exactly the same, but similar inquiry into religious freedom over the past four years. Are the religious really that not, really not that free? Is that, well, is that well, what's we'll going hear, on? We'll hear more about the that in, in just a moment. So, um, Anyway, uh, just to, uh, in regard to those four, there was one by the Australian Law Reform Commission which found little evidence in response to your question, Nick, that uh, Australian law infringed on freedom of religion. And there's an ongoing investigation headed by, um, or sorry, that, that's also produced an interim report. So why do we need another one? And that was the question I put to Jamie Gardner, who's one of the vice presidents of Liberty Victoria, and they've made submissions to both those inquiries. There are two things. This immediate one is a political sop to the extreme right to say, stop messing up the process of getting the marriage legislation through the parliament. You can have a second bite at the cherry. I'll give you a, an inquiry chaired by one of the arch-right-wingers in the Liberal Party and who as Attorney General introduced the Howard, should be called Howard Ruddock, discriminatory amendment in 2004. Can you just explain the discriminatory amendment? In 2004, Attorney General Ruddock, uh, probably inspired in my view by the expectation that the family court would rule in favour of recognising foreign same-sex marriages, in particular two couples who got married in Canada, a lesbian couple and a male couple. I'm sure that Ruddock was advised by his um, senior lawyers that there was a good chance the family court would say that those marriages should be recognised under Australian law. Ruddock and Howard then all of a sudden introduced an amendment to bar that possibility, to cut off these two court cases in the middle of hearing and to create a formal discriminatory definition of marriage which had never existed before. And did not allow this, this, this couple's marriage to be recognised in the court? Absolutely cut it off at the knees. The second limb of the origins of this religious freedom inquiry is the American distortion of the First Amendment talking about religious freedoms as a device, as some American authors have said, for undermining civil rights more generally. That comes to Australia through American evangelism, through the mass churches 
and through a non-church but a self-styled Christian lobby which has been extremely powerful, very media savvy although clearly they completely misunderstood the Australian electorate in thinking that they were going to defeat public view which has been there for a long time that marriage equality was right. Freedom of religion in our tradition, similar to the international, is a freedom of of equality. Equal treatment of religions, no preference for religions, no preferences by the state between religions or between religions and non-religions. So secular alternatives to religion, secular ways of being, are included in the freedom of religion on an equal par. That is the Australian tradition of freedom of religion, and that's the way the Australian Law Reform Commission dealt with it when tasked with examining a whole range of so-called traditional rights and freedoms. Using the term religious freedoms is a trap. It's a framing trap, which they have very successfully sold to the media. Is it a kind of 1984-style newspeak? Well, it is actually. Religious freedoms is actually code for religious privilege, of which they want more. They have too much religious privilege, and they want more. Freedom of religion, and the submission says very clearly, is about equality. It's about treating all religions and people without religion on an equal par. About the state, in this case the Commonwealth of Australia, not giving preferences to one set of beliefs over another. What are the religious privileges that Liberty Victoria would like to see curtailed? Well, the first one is uh, the privilege not to pay tax. The notion that, inverted commas, that put it in quotes, advancing religion, end of quote, is an inherently charitable purpose. I say that because that's a technical issue in the law. Freedom not to pay taxes is one that should be abolished. A very important one, and the people who instigated this review wanted to go the other way, the freedom to discriminate on various attributes, in some, in some states all attributes apart from race, is um, another one that is a privilege which is absolutely unjustifiable. Freedom to discriminate in employment, in education, in the provision of goods and services, the provision of accommodation. Freedom to discriminate is the one that the American right wing are very keen on and that was one that was imported under this rubric of religious freedoms. We believe, Liberty believes, I believe very strongly and have done so for a long time that the exemptions from the Sex Discrimination Act and from the various state and territory equal opportunity acts, anti-discrimination acts, called all different things in different places those exemptions for uh, religious bodies are completely unprincipled and improper and should be removed and if you've just tuned in we're speaking to Jamie Gardner who is a vice president of Liberty Victoria, one of the vice presidents, and he's talking about their submission to the inquiry into religious freedom. The only exemptions that religious bodies should have are the the ones that are general, which are bona fide occupational qualifications. So to be a priest or a rabbi or or an imam or a, a pastor... To be one of those, to train for those positions, to be employed in those positions is inherently one which is part of religious belief that is constitutionally protected. The law cannot interfere with 
those sorts of things under the Constitution and it shouldn't because to do that would interfere with the primary freedom to believe and to implement your belief so long as it doesn't harm others, it harms no one else. And what about the accountability of religious institutions? One of the freedoms that they should not have is freedom from accountability. Freedom from accountability is precisely what allowed the terrible findings of the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sex abuse. They were freed from accountability by custom as well as by law, by law enforcement authorities who who basically covered up and failed to hold them accountable. That was a freedom that shouldn't have been available. They must be accountable like any other large and powerful organisation. There seems to be, to me, a kind of irony where a group that benefits from the notion of religious freedom then seeks to discriminate against other groups demanding the right to take away the freedom of particular groups. There's something very strange in that. One of the things that we are calling for is a full-scale Human Rights Act in which proper international processes for balancing rights and freedoms to making sure that people can enjoy their human rights to the maximum extent that doesn't impinge on other people's human rights and freedoms. That would solve any residual problems about areas where perhaps genuine freedom of religion may perhaps be inadequate. But this is something which these these same religious bodies that want the freedom to discriminate against other people have fought in the past, precisely because if there's a general human rights act, their ability to lord it over others may well be impaired, as indeed it would be. They have no proper claim to lording it over others, and they should be equal with other beliefs, religious and non-religious, cannot and must not be able to trample on the human rights and freedoms of people who do not share those beliefs. And that's Jamie Gardner, one of the vice presidents of Liberty Victoria, talking about the concept of religious freedom and um, to some, in some ways a kind of subversion of it as well in the way it's been interpreted in some areas and by some people. We'll hear more from Jamie in a few minutes. Yeah, and you are on 3CR Wednesday breakfast this morning. And we're going to continue our conversation with Jamie Gardner. Uh, the submission by Liberty Victoria to the Inquiry into Religious Freedom also discusses religious and religion in schools and uh, argues that the chaplaincy program uh, should be discontinued. And I asked Jamie Gardner, what's wrong with the chaplaincy program? Everything, frankly. A chaplain is a, not only a particularly religious office, but it's, it's a word connected directly with a particular subset of religions. So a chaplaincy program is explicitly a program conceived by people who only thought of one religion. Secondly, it is only people who are involved in religions which involve in some sense supernatural beings or things, to quote the High Court, and it is completely contrary to the secular nature of Australian government schools, and it puts untrained teachers into schools, technically not to proselytise. Every school 
pretty well it's going to be getting a chaplain in this case it's going to be getting a chaplain of one flavour of religion not another it's a divisive anti-secular discriminatory funding is almost certainly a real need for professional counsellors, youth workers psychologists to be assist in many schools and they should be provided they should be funded they should be people who are properly trained who have uh, working with children checks and who will not be pushing their own branch of belief system onto children in the secular school you also talk more generally about religious instruction in schools yes I have to say, liberty, liberty has no problem with children learning about religions, plural, and I emphasise plural, because religions of various sorts have been and are major actors in our, in our and in world society. Some religions, the most common religions here in Australia, have been behind a whole range of things, some good, many bad, wars, possession of, of indigenous peoples justifying all sorts of horrors but also uh, doing good things I've no doubt about that the critical thing is religious belief and warring religious beliefs have played an important part in history but it is important that children when they're learning about history and literature and exploration and science understand that there are many different belief systems from the ones that they perhaps might be being brought up in. People in one belief system don't in fact always hold all the same belief. I mean, one of the things that's very important to point out is that ordinary people of faith do not on the whole support the extremist views of some of their leaders. We can see that by the fact that a majority of people who profess Christian faith in the population voted yes in the marriage equality survey. So it's the people are, are not the problem. The doctrines and the hierarchy probably are. But there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's important that children learn at the appropriate levels, depending on their age, about the fact that people believe many different things and the things that they and their parents might believe may be different from what the next door believe and believing is okay hurting other people is not okay and that is the fundamental of religious education rather than religious instruction religious instruction is about being narrow is about being divisive ghettoizing and that's what we don't want in our schools that's why we have schools that are supposed to be secular. And that was Jamie Gardner from um, Liberty Victoria talking about the role of religion in schools and problems, lots of problems, with the chaplaincy program. I actually uh, had a friend who was um, part of the chaplaincy program, um, married to a friend of mine who was a, a Christian friend in, in high school, um, and I quite liked this guy. I thought he um, he definitely meant well. He liked working uh, with young people. And um, one day he was on Facebook and he was posting about the chaplaincy program. And normally he's the kind of guy that just sort of jokes about stuff and he doesn't uh, doesn't get serious about stuff. Even though, like, so I'd, I'd never really had religious conversations with him. It was always just like sort of pop culture stuff and whatever. 
And, um, yeah, he did this whole uh, 10-piece um, rant on the chaplaincy program and why the chaplaincy program is so fantastic and should stay in schools. Uh, and I, I said to him, like, I, the fundamental question that I had for him was, why don't you go out and get the appropriate training then? It's not going to take long. It's probably going to take less than a year to get the kind of appropriate training that you could then use um, in schools. Because at the moment, what you're saying is that your appropriate training is your religion, is your belief system, is your, you know, and I don't think that's appropriate. I don't care if you have that in the background and have also had the appropriate training um, to do counselling for teenagers but I don't think that your one, uh, the, the one thing that you should have that allows you to do this is your religious belief. Yes, and of course... He blocked me. Yeah. <laughs> well, religious beliefs also vary, and I guess one of the concerns that Jamie and I did talk about was if your beliefs, for example, are um, against, um, you know, same-sex marriage for, or marriage equality, for example, or, um, you know, suggests that... Um, Young people might, I'll just stop, we didn't talk about that, so I'll just say, yeah, but if, if you have beliefs that might discriminate against uh, young gay people, gay, lesbian, bisexual, questioning all of transgender, if your beliefs are against that and you have children in your group as a chaplain, then how does that affect those young people? Uh, do you, are you quiet about that? Or are you accepting of everyone? Do you have some agreement that everyone is equal in this group and all um, expressions are valued? And I think that's one of the things that would come with training to learn to facilitate those processes. Exactly. So, yes, there's much more in that whole chaplaincy uh, issue than even we had time for in, in, in the interview. Yeah. And, and really this is um, one part of a, a broader story that I think we've been covering on, on the Wednesday Breakfast program, um, just sort of shining this light on this soft Christian theocracy we have buzzing along in the background of Australia, where the government will give large amounts of money to organisations to take care of things that the government maybe should be taking care of, or a secular organisation might be, should be taking care of. And it gives these organisations power. I mean, a, a lot of people think of the Salvation Army as quite a good organisation because they're very good at PR uh, and they have a, a, a number of um, programs that really build their um, their public relations and positive public relations. Um, but we also know that they are, uh, at, at the highest level, um, very anti Gay people, for example, and um, we know that they're, uh, I mean, they, they work with people with alcohol and other drug problems and they have very, um, very rigid views on that and they're not necessarily trained. They do have some trained people and they, they do have a, a large structure and a lot of money because uh, they're able to, to lobby for that and to say we're providing an essential service and look, you don't have to do it. Isn't that wonderful? Um, by the way, here are our terms and conditions. <laughs> yes. Praise the Lord. I mean, I mean, I think that's been a controversy like going back to the 1980s, the way governments generally try and save money by uh, passing their responsibilities to care for people, whether it's in schools, you know, public institutions, on to other organizations that will do it more cheaply for the government mm. but also not, they do it more cheaply by not having the qualified people in place and I think as you say the chaplaincy program is just 
one more example of that kind of thing. But we've got lots of them. We certainly have. And now we have, uh, I think we have Circo answering phone calls yes. for Centrelink. Who are this sort of like classic bad guy company? Like, that's how I feel like they are in my head. I see them around everywhere and, you know, they do bins and roads and stuff. Uh, and then they're looking after detention centers. And you think, hang on a minute, like... Uh, yes. there, there was a great little um, Pixar kids movie, and um, um, I, can't, I can't remember which one it was, but um, they were talking about this company that just so happens to make all the all the uh, voting machines, all the maps. Uh, they look after all the news, and this guy didn't think it was a problem until he <laughs> recited all the things that they did and went, oh, hang on. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's not good. Um, kind of feel like so what, that one way arm not speaking okay. to the other arm, or people not realising, yeah. yeah, yes, what, what different um, projects these, these companies are involved in. We will be speaking to uh, Warren Roberts a little bit later about uh, the Melbourne Yard, and Fiona Patton from the Reason Party also uh, in on the program a little bit later to talk to us uh, a little bit more about... Um, about the, the free go that um, religions get to promote religion as a charitable uh, purpose. But right now, this is Bronwyn Rose. Uh, she's a Melbourne girl, and this is Frey and 3CR. And we heard Kuta Edwards, who won the Melbourne Music Prize last year with the song Roland, and I think that's from his latest album, which came out last year. Thank you, Judith. It's uh, 3CR uh, Wednesday Breakfast with uh, Nick and Judith, Patty, Ada, Feral Sausage Roll, and can't be with us today. <laughs> hopefully next week. And um, he's also, he had an interview, but we'll, we'll have to um, uh, figure that out for next week as well, because there was no answer on the call. So instead, uh, we're, we're pushing things forward, and Fiona Patton, uh, leader of the Reason Party, also member of the Legislative Council, is with us in the studio. Fiona, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. And you had a uh, busy night last night, uh, teaming up with Liberty Victoria, who we just uh, heard from 10 I minutes did, ago. I did, I did, and it's part of um, their kind of Young Lawyers program where we talked about um, the Supervised Injection Centre soon to be opened in North Richmond and I guess where that where that then takes us in future drug policy. Mm, very interesting. Mm, well, yes, great. I, I want to talk more about it, but we have got you in here today because, <laughs> um, I mean, look, there's a number of things. It must be an election year or something. Uh, <laughs> number of things, something that came out recently, a couple of weeks ago, the Age had a, a, a very special report yeah. uh, finding that uh, the Catholic Church's wealth uh, was significantly more than um, it was sort of claiming to be, um, mm. at times sort of almost claiming... Uh, claiming poor not quite but uh. well i think there there has been times when when um various sections of the catholic church have said that they couldn't afford to pay uh, remuneration to to the victims of of sexual abuse uh and and some of the people who were who gave evidence at the royal commission certainly uh spoke about that but that age article was um was really illuminating and it's it was an interesting series of events that led to that, and um, oddly enough, it was it was the Black Saturday fires, which led to the fire services levy, which led to the valuation of all properties. Right. So prior to that, um, if a property didn't pay rates or didn't pay land tax, it wasn't valued, but the fire services levy covered all properties, whether they paid land tax or not, and that was I how see. it was exposed. Right, so it's, it's the value of property held by the churches as well that, that's coming into play here. Correct, and, and this isn't just, you know, the, the beautiful blue stone spires that we see around 
around um, our regional areas and around our cities. I mean, this is tennis courts, this is apartment buildings, office blocks. It's a it's a it's a huge uh, a huge and diverse range of properties, many of which are used for commercial purposes. I, I believe the uh, Catholic Church just about owns the entire top of the the hill on um, on Victoria Parade there. Um, they're, them and the Freemasons, which you know they've they been. they own a substantial slab of that as well as Albert Street, and then the Anglican Church owns a lot of Richmond. Right. Um, so, yeah, the the religious institutions own an awful lot of property that you wouldn't say was being put to charitable purposes. And they are able to, I mean, earn a lot of money from having this property and charge people their rates. And, um, I mean, it's a good way to make money. It's one of the best ways to make money from what I understand. I'm not very good at this because I don't own any property <laughs> as, a, as a millennial. Uh, we don't own property. We eat avocado on toast. This <laughs> um, yes. So, yeah. So what are you finding when you've been looking into this? That... Um, that, you know, part of it, I think you were speaking about it before with Jamie Gardner, the, the notion of religious privilege. Well, for hundreds of years, all religious organisations have been exempt from all taxation. And, and this is also extended to rates, uh, but land tax, stamp duty, payroll tax, um, and, and then most federal, federal taxes. Uh, and this is not on the grounds of feeding the poor or housing the homeless or providing health or education services. This is on the grounds of what they call a charitable head of the advancement advancement of religion. So this is, is purely uh, get converting people, to, uh, bringing more people over to their particular religious persuasion. So, so for example, uh, there's a very large insurance company called Catholic Insurance, uh, enormous company and they don't pay tax because they are listed as a charity uh, for the advancement of religion. Amazing. Uh, sanitarium, the uh, breakfast cereal company, yes, again, yes. listed for the advancement of religion. Mm. I, ha- I have a friend who grew up in that particular faith and uh, advised me not to buy the peanut butter, although I was quite attached <laughs> to it. But, that, but that's a diversion. I yes. <laughs> I was a wheat mix kid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yes, so I... But I think what what really was highlighted in that Age article and also what's been highlighted in the Royal Commission and various other investigations is just that complete lack of transparency. We just don't know. Yes. We we just don't know. So when, you know, the New South Wales Diocese says we don't have enough money to pay compensation to victims, we have no way of, of, um, of questioning that statement. No way of, no way of testing it. Correct. So Correct. How, what can we do about it? How do we change this situation? Well, we've, we've been thinking long and hard about this. And, uh, and when you say we, you're talking uh, the reason part. The re- yeah, reason and, and, and certainly even it's... Um, Spread uh, out a little uh, bit further. Yeah, well, uh, and, <laughs> se- and sex party before that. Mm. But, it, you know, and it does go along the lines of, of religious privilege, although, you know, from a different angle. But how could we make them more tra- transparent? And... You know, I have nothing, you know, I think religious organisations do some really marvellous work yes. um, and, and a lot of them, the sort of Sisters of Mercy have done some great stuff 
uh, in around fact, this just, area. In fact, just like last week we spoke to Jane Keogh from the Rigidine mm-hmm. Sisters who's doing a lot of work with refugees on Manus. So absolutely, and I think in the middle of these conversations it's important to acknowledge um, those things exactly. as well as... as, well as uh, absolutely, Judith, yeah. absolutely, and I think it, it's really important to do that. So what... So what we considered is how can you make organisations more transparent and, and how are organisations made transparent? And really taxation and putting in tax returns is actually one of those ways because it makes you accountable for the money you've earned and the money you've spent and how you've spent that money. Yes, yeah, so, so then we could ascertain whether the money has been spent on charitable purposes, which is the reason for the exemption, or whether it's not spent on charitable right. purposes. And I think also I think it's time now to question whether the advancement of religion is of benefit to, to our society. When about 10% of the population are involved in religious institutions. Uh, I, I do often joke that um, all of these, you know, I think 30% of the listed charities have advancement of religion as their um, charitable head. And, you know, when you look at the census from last year and the, d- the decline in religiosity, they're obviously not doing a very good job in advancing a religion. But having said that, I think we do need to question whether advancement of religion should be provide charitable status. And if not, then certainly the money raised that goes towards other charitable activities that we would all recognise as charitable activities should be tax exempt. But maybe they should be paying a bit of land tax or some stamp duty, uh, particularly on those commercial entities. And we're going to introduce some legislation uh, over the next few weeks to, to do just that at a state level, to look at stamp duty and land tax and payroll tax. So it sounds to me like it's a more calibrated approach to tax exemption that you're looking at. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think the main objective of this was to provide some transparency. Now, I would, I would hope that most religious institutions would welcome that and would say, you know, in, in many ways it enables them to, to celebrate the, the wonderful work that they're doing and the enormous amount of funds that they're putting in to, to the services that they provide. But on the other hand, to, to give them an advantage um, in a commercial sense against other small businesses and other large medium medium yes, businesses. I mean that, that's a that's an important uh, issue. Yeah, I don't I don't see why they should be given that privilege. Do we know uh, the advancement of religion as part of a charitable purpose? Is this something that's unique to Australia or is this something that other countries have across the world? It's hundreds and it's hundreds of years old hundreds and hundreds of years old. So there are other, yes, certainly other countries have got it. But so other, other countries perhaps like the United Kingdom? The UK, Kingdom. most Commonwealth countries, you're right, right. Nick, you're right. Um, but certainly countries like Canada are, are changing that and, and, and asking for much, more, uh, much greater accountability. Australia is probably one of the most generous as far as tax exemptions for the advancement of religion. Uh, and we're certainly seeing countries like Italy and Spain uh, starting to to charge taxes taxes to religious organisations and institutions that are profitable. So it's it's changing around the world, and I think Australia is um, ready for it. I think so, especially after our royal commission into the the churches and seeing that they don't 
they don't hold the moral high ground that they claim to have and um, they ought to be treated like anybody else in our society and not receive special privileges, which is um, generally how this has been playing out. As we were discussing with um, Jamie Gardner uh, earlier from Liberty Victoria, uh, that there's a number of uh, number of places um, that, uh, that that these organisations get get special privileges, like to enter schools and to. I mean, they're not meant to proselytise, but I think it's sort of one of these. Once you've got the relationship, it doesn't matter um, because you've got that relationship and you can leverage that. And I've heard these yeah. kind of conversations. And, and there's no doubt that they are proselytising. I mean, we, we you only have to look at their websites to to see the types of information that they that they are instilling in their chaplains and 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 in their teachers in those in those areas i the purposes the purpose of my bill will be to discuss the the role of the advancement of religion whether in the 21st century it's actually what whether it does have a charitable purpose uh personally i don't think it does uh, but Do you also mean that the promotion of religion doesn't have a charitable purpose or that religion doesn't have a charitable purpose? No, I think I'm saying just specifically that head of advancement of religion doesn't, right. have, yeah. doesn't have a charitable purpose these days. Now, hundreds of years ago, it may well have because we had absolutely no welfare system uh, whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So possibly, you know, back in those days, the advancement of religion may have... Um, been worthwhile from a chari- from a charitable purpose. I mean, in fact, in those days, in fact, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it was only religious organisations that could collect tax. Um, so, <laughs> so advancing what, religion probably did help because amazing. you could collect the taxes yes. that then you could yeah. you could provide welfare to to our community. Mm. That that is not the case now. So, are we at a time now where we're seeing a sort of a great pivot away from um, an organisation? Uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church is the extension of the, the Roman Empire. It's, it's been the sort of the holder of, uh, of Western uh, of Western civilization for yeah. hundreds and thousands of years, even throughout. Um, you know, the, the Dark Ages. But I was going to say, seeing... don't forget the Dark Ages. <laughs> let's, let's, let's not forget that. And perhaps that's what we're, you know, remembering now and we're, we're going, well, we don't, we don't need these, um, these organisations as, as the, the placeholders for, for civilization. We have developed secular governance and, um, and this is good for people of all different religious perspectives. Absolutely, and this is about freedom of religion. You know, this is this is certainly, but it's also about freedom from religion. Um, yes, it's both, yes. And... I, you know, again, acknowledge the, the great work that, that many of these relig- religious institutions have done for the welfare of our refugees, for the welfare of our homeless. Uh, for, for many of us have at one stage or another um, probably used a St. Vincent de Paul or, or some other um, Salvation Army for, for assistance. So it's not, um, it's not that we're disputing the good that they do. We're just asking for transparency. And it's almost just asking for a fair playing ground. If I, yeah. I genuinely want to help people too, and I enjoy um, being part of it. I mean, this is a volunteer organisation right. here, and I enjoy uh, you know, giving to charities and, and being a part mm. of those. But it seems unfair to me, just at a, at a really personal level, unfair that somebody, because of a belief that they have that I disagree with and I don't believe in, yeah. they get uh, a, a special privilege above me, even though we could be doing exactly the same work. That's right, and I think it really is time for us to be questioning relig- questioning religion, religious privilege. And you know, and it and it it is interesting that this coincides with the the Brandis inquiry 
Is it Bruce? Oh, there's oh, three. We figured Ruddock, out there's three the, of them. The Ruddock <laughs> Inquiry. Yeah, that's right. There's three. There's that's the most that. recent, but there's another there's one, another and there one. was another one a few years ago. So, so why yeah. do we need all of these, and uh, why are they? Um, you know, who's leading them? Yeah. Is the question. And we've seen. I mean, one of where we're where we're reflecting on in the legislation that will pre- present at a state level is some of the Canadian legislation, which is. Again, it's a it's a country with a very similar culture to us, um, and it's questioning the the role of the advancement of religion in our community. Does you know we we I think we get a sense of community so, in so many different ways now. It's not um, it's not from the pulpit and it's not in in the church in the churches. It's it's far you know organisations like 3CR, but it's also you know technology has changed our sense of community mm. and, and, our, and our sense of tribe. Uh, so I think that the role of religion in that sense and the advancement of religion um, has changed enormously. Absolutely. And, uh, yes, and it's, so it's really good and important to be looking into that right now. I guess they're just thinking about the Canadian situation. They also have a Bill of Rights, which was <laughs> one, one of the things that uh, mm. Jamie Gardner argued for um, because he said, you know, if we had that then some of this discriminatory uh, processes that people are wanting to have or do have. He's absolutely right and it was interesting just on a side note of last night when we were at Liberty Victoria, we were talking about um, supervised injecting centres in Canada, yes, and they opened one of the first ones. Uh, well, actually, they officially opened just after Sydney, but uh, in the uh-huh. early 2000s. Not that we're competitive. <laughs> Not that we're competitive. That's right. <laughs> well, we are. Um, but, but the reason that they opened that was because they challenged it under the Human Rights Charter. Uh, yes. And the the particular I can't remember the exact wording, but it's about um, the freedom to lo- for life or mm, the um, yes. the right to life. Yes. Which okay. yes. ironically was also the same part of the of, of the bill that they argued for um, voluntary sister dying in Canada oh, was under the right to life meant the right to death as well. I see. Yes. This is 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, we're about 10 minutes away from 8. Um, Fiona, if you would like to stick around for a tick, there is one other topic I'd like to uh, <laughs> okay. bring up with you uh, since we've got you in the studio <laughs> and we've got a bit more time. Um, so uh, five minutes away from <laughs> 8 o'clock. Oh, that got serious at the end. They're heading for a top of 30 degrees uh, and cloudy today, and it's going to be much the same until Saturday uh, when we're going to get a little bit of rain, which, is, of course, is when everybody wants to be outside uh, here in the studio uh, on Wednesday breakfast with Judith, of course, and uh, Fiona Patton from the Reason Party, formerly the Australian Sex Party, uh, and also a member of the Legislative Council. But um, uh, right now... Uh, as your role on the um, God, the, the committee. Yes. You're on a committee that is looking into a, an inquiry into drug law reform, yes. um, and it's something... What was the committee's name again? Um, it's the Road and Community Safety Committee. committee. Right, fantastic, uh, <laughs> which happens to look into drug issues. The Road and Community Safety Committee. But, yes, we are, we've been doing... Um, well, it's been nearly two years, but it's certainly 18 months of solid work looking at drug, drug law reform. And it's probably the most wide-ranging uh, inquiry and, and therefore report uh, on this issue that, that any um, parliament in Australia has done. So give us a little bit of uh, background on the work that uh, the committee has engaged in so far over that yeah. 18 months. Just so, a summary. Yeah, so, I mean, 
I, I threw, um, I gave it the most ridiculous terms of reference, and when the public servants looked at it, they said, that is a decade of work, <laughs> um, and we don't have a decade. Well, maybe you will have a decade. Maybe you will get re-elected, right. but anyway, um, we don't have a decade. So we looked at, um, we tried to look at where drug laws were working and, and what, what different laws there were and what different approaches there were around drug laws. And so in that, we've... We've received hundreds of submissions from an incredibly broad range of people. We're really fortunate um, as a committee to travel overseas to, to Portugal, to Switzerland, uh, to, to London, um, to Colorado. And uh, Cal- Portugal in particular is a country that's doing it quite differently. Correct. Decriminalised uh, drugs. Yeah, correct. And I think one of the general things that we saw, um, general trends that we saw everywhere <clears throat> was treating drug use as a health issue yes, and so not important. as a criminal one. And I think that that trend, uh, Portugal certainly has led the way and they've, they've um, I don't think it's radical, but they've done some really great work where they've shifted their focus to, to treatment and to helping people rather than locking them up. And most jurisdictions that we went to, uh, were following those sorts of lines. And then we also saw um, the other areas around law reform uh, in United States and in, and in um, Canada, which was around the legalisation of cannabis and taking that product out of the criminal market. And, and this is what your, uh, most, the most recent uh, media release from yeah. the office of Fiona Patton has put out. It's actually your tough on crime agenda, I yeah. hear. So you're joining the, the, the Liberal Party and Labor Party I, look, in their tough on crime. That's right. Yep. If you can't beat them, join them as they say. So I've put the challenge out to them that if they really are tough on crime, then they would adopt our policy, which was to, to, to legalise and regulate the cannabis market. And how is this tough on crime, Fiona? It's really interesting, Nick. Um, so we saw in the Herald Sun that they, that they now estimate that the cannabis industry in Victoria is worth somewhere around $8 billion. Now, and that's because it's illegal. And that goes to criminals. Mm-hmm. Yes. And those criminals, they don't spend that money on public parks, on public transport, on health systems and on education. Or even in Australia. Or even in Australia, a lot of that money is siphoned out overseas. Mm -hmm. Some of that money is even siphoned into terrorist activities in 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 other jurisdictions. Um, It's certainly it's money that if we remove that out of the criminal trade, we would reduce crime. We also, when you look at the number of arrests um, around drug possession, for example, uh, there was about twenty three thousand arrests uh, for drug possession and drug use in Victoria. Uh, and about 15,000 of those were for cannabis. So the vast majority of people with a, a small amount of small yep. amount of cannabis, are we talking? This is probably not the, the higher amount. That's right. This is a small amount. This is a, a, a possession amount. Yep, possession. So a person, not trafficking, a not commercial quantity Correct. possession. So I think I'm actually being quite conservative when I say if you take that $8 billion out of the criminal market when you take those thousands of people who were being arrested for, for small quantities of, of cannabis 
out of the court system, you will reduce crime by 10%. You will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and something that's quite interesting here is the symbiotic relationship between politicians and the people who are selling these drugs and making lots of money yeah. because they need the politicians. They need them to keep it illegal <laughs> or they will lose their profits. I know. It's, it's, it's an awful symbiotic relationship, Judith. And, you know, our laws work to the advantage of the criminals. They don't work to the advantage of the general public. So one has to ask who's in the criminal's pocket. <laughs> sorry, yes, well, I, I'm bold and brave. I know. <laughs> sorry. Well, we, we, we should possibly look at the election donation <laughs> list and see if we've seen any. Well, we know it's happened in the past. We have evidence of it happening in the past. Uh, yeah. Right now, it's, it's hard to make those uh, accusations yeah. with evidence because yeah. it's, yeah. A, it's and a, I do thing qual- a black I do market. Qualify but, it. I just yeah. put it as a what, question. What, yep. we, what we do know and what we saw in Colorado, for example, which has probably which has had legal cannabis for quite a number of years now, is that they believe that they have reduced their black market by 90%, which is, you know, I mean, that's, that sits that's, around, that's incredible. That that's sits around where tobacco sits in Australia. Yeah. We, in fact, tobacco, we think that we've probably got about a 15% black market in tobacco now. Um, so they've reduced it by 90%. They, that money now goes into that. They're, they're offering free tertiary education in Colorado now because they can afford it. Um, so the money that they are that they are bringing in is is going onto roads. It is going into education. They have not seen an increase in drug use, and importantly, they have been able to regulate who has access to cannabis and who sells it. Where because we do not regulate that at, at the moment. You can't stop a fourteen-year-old from buying cannabis, and you can't stop a criminal from selling it. Uh, you, you sit on the Law Reform Road and Community Safety Committee and we're talking about the inquiry into drug law reform. Uh, that report is going to be delivered in well, about a month's time, I think. Very yeah, I think we're probably looking at about four weeks today. About four weeks. Excellent. And will we be expecting... I mean, is there anything that you can tell us about what the report's going to release at this stage or uh, is it all a bit... A bit yeah, unfortunately, it's, it's um, completely confidential. Absolutely. But what I can say is that we received some of the most amazing evidence um, from, from everyone, from, from police and coroners, down to academics, down to doc- doctors, uh, down to, to people who use, use drugs recreationally um, and the organisations that support um, our, our society and, and um, the use of drugs in, in health and legal areas. So it, it will be a very, very comprehensive report and I think will be an incredibly useful document for years to come. We very much look forward to it. Um, and, of course, July 1st this year is when Canada starts legally selling cannabis. So there are now multiple places to look at around the world that have legal regulated uh, cannabis, um, uh, cannabis uh, industries. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a growing yeah. body of evidence out there. We are not Robinson Crusoe on this, or I'm certainly not. And with California, the fifth largest economy now, um, selling cannabis, they say that that actually could disrupt even our criminal market. Wonderful. Well, very interesting. Thank you so much. Thank Fiona, you. Thank, thank you, Judith. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for coming in, and we uh, yeah very much look forward to having that, uh, hearing what happens. More, I'm sure we'll hear from you in about four weeks' time. Indeed. Thank you. The social safety net in Australia is being eroded by government cutbacks to essential services 
and also bullying tactics, as we've seen recently with the Centrelink robo-debts, for just one example. This is a public Over the Wall wants to offer you some simple tools to fight back and defend yourself against a grossly unfair and aggressive system. A system that penalises people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. Tune in every Monday at 7.50am on Monday Brekkie for Over the Wall. You're listening to 3CR Radio. These listener sponsors who keep the radio station going, when you become a listener sponsor, you get a part of this radio station. You get a little part of it. It's yours. You get a little share of it. It's 3CR Subscriber Drive and we're asking you to show your love for 3CR. Support your favourite show by calling us on 9419 8377 or online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. $35 unwaged, $70 waged or 150 solidarity. Subscribe to 3CR today. People lining up uh, out in the street, uh, out in Swiss Street in Collingwood, lining up to take out their listener sponsorship. It's five minutes past eight, 3CR Wednesday breakfast with uh, Nick and Judith uh, Paddy away with a sore stomach due to a sausage roll, <laughs> a bad sausage roll this morning. Uh, and in the studio now we have uh, Jane from the Vixen Collective. Jane, welcome to 3CR breakfast. And th- thanks for getting up early for us too. Not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you're in here today um, because I saw something flash across Twitter um, about a fairly local business, and I'm not going to mention them many times, but I will mention them once just so uh, people know, but um, uh, it's uh, Grilled in Collingwood, and uh, if you've ever been to one of these um, burger stores, they have a little scheme where they uh, you can give to some of the local charitable organisations. But one of the organisations that uh, is receiving money right now from... Uh, that business, is an organisation called Project Respect, which is headed up uh, by the um, uh, the Greens contender for this local seat, um, the seat of Richmond. R- Richmond, thank Richmond. you. I was thinking, yep, seat of Richmond, which is Kathleen Maltzen. Um So maybe can you tell us a little bit about what Project Respect so, uh, uh, do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Kathleen Maltzen is the founder of Project Respect, and Project Respect is what we would call an anti-sex work organisation. Um, and I should just explain for people that aren't familiar with Vixen Collective. Vixen Collective is the representative organisation for sex workers in Victoria, and we're a peer organisation. And what that means is that everyone who's involved with the organisation at every level is a current or former sex worker. And we specifically exclude other members of the sex industry, so people like owners, operators, um, managers, receptionists and other workers are excluded. Um, so we're just a workers' organisation. And um, there's a long history of protesting against Project Respect um, because they lobby to criminalise sex work and obviously um, that's not good for sex workers. Uh, I come from a background, I've been in the sex industry more than 20 years and I've actually worked under criminalisation and obviously... Sex uh, work, just like sex, isn't going anywhere. Um, 
But under criminalisation, we're still there, but our rights are significantly compromised. And importantly, our safety is significantly compromised. And Project Respect are um, calling for a form of criminalisation called the Swedish model. Oh, it's, it's been a disaster. <laughs> yes, it has. Um, and look, I know Swedish sex workers have had to live and work under this. And often um, anti-sex work groups try and sort of market it by saying it criminalises clients but not workers. But it actually criminalises everything around workers. So clients are criminalised, but um, police aren't psychic. They only know how to find clients by surveilling and policing sex workers. And um, it criminalises all forms of working collectively. So brothels are illegal, but also workers can't work together, which is an important component of working safely. Doesn't that, yeah, so this is, um, I, I mean, it doesn't sound very safe at all. No. For, so where does the safety claim uh, from these uh, from these pushes come from? Well, I mean, the idea behind the Swedish model is to make sex work so hostile and difficult that um, it'll stop occurring. So they're abolitionists and that's what they call themselves. So, but it's an unrealistic idea and it certainly hasn't occurred in Sweden or in other places where the Swedish model has been imposed. All it's done is made sex workers' lives miserable and dangerous mm. um, and that's obviously not good. Um, so and some of the other things it's done, when the Swedish model was introduced in Sweden, it made it illegal to provide accommodation from sex workers because the idea was that they would work from it, so it led to endemic homelessness amongst sex workers. It criminalises living off the earnings, so anyone that's connected to sex workers, including partners and friends. And, and even, children, presumably. Yeah, even the adult children of sex workers have been prosecuted mm. under that law. Um, two sex workers that are working together can be charged with pimping each other. Um, so it has a lot of really severe consequences. Now, obviously, Victorian sex workers don't want that brought in here. So there's been a really long history of protesting against that. And there's significant concern that the Victorian Greens would pre-select and run a candidate who supports that model. Which seems, I mean, counterproductive, to, I mean, counterintuitive to what most people might think of the values of the Greens representing? Well, the Greens' policy on sex work actually supports the decriminalisation of sex work. And the criminalisation of sex work is what's held as the best pro practice model for sex work. That's what makes us uh, safest. It's what supports our human rights and our labour rights. It's what's in place in both New South Wales and New Zealand. So there's long-term studies of the effects of that on sex workers' lives and work. And... Yes, it's the Greens policy, both the Victorian Greens and the Australian Greens at a national level. So the fact that they have that as their policy and yet they've selected a candidate that opposes that policy and also founded an organisation that's made it its mission to call for the exact opposite of that policy is deeply concerning. See, my mind would immediately think, oh, the Greens have been infiltrated by fundamentalist Christians. But this isn't the case. We've just spent the past hour talking about these organisations that go out and, and sort of moralise because of their religious persuasion. But maybe we need to bring up a term now uh, that some people might be familiar with, uh, SWERF. Yes. Uh, S-W-E-R-F. Can you tell us what this term means and how it might apply in this case? Yes. So um, SWERF is Sex Worker Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Um, and there's another TERF, um, Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, or TERF. Um, and often the two go hand in hand. And um, 
we tend to see anti-sex work organisations fall into one of two camps. Um, we certainly have religious organisations that oppose sex work on moral grounds, but we also have secular organisations that see themselves as feminist, um, and that's where the RF of Zwerf comes from, radical feminist, and they view all sex work as being violence against women and often have this sort of uh, slut-shaming, victim-blaming view of sex workers where we're specifically responsible for violence against women and therefore we need to be eradicated. So I've got a number of friends who are sex workers who have been approached, not necessarily by Project Respect, but I know there's a number of other organisations that uh, visit sex workers when, when they're at their workplace with things like cleaning products, with the implication being that you're dirty and you need to clean properly, but they always do it with a saccharine smile. Oh yes, they like to give us toiletries, um, <laughs> because obviously we don't know how to wash unless we're given them by organisations that are so, trying so to help can us. I, can I just clarify then, so despite the fact that, um, you know, both the United Nations and uh, Amnesty International have recognised decriminalisation as the, the best uh, way to go for um, the sex workers to protect sex workers, to, provi- uh, to protect the, their human rights, their dignity, despite that, we have people still in our community that are kind of proselytizing and going around and trying to convert sex workers, perhaps. I think that's kind of what you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. And look, health and human rights bodies globally um, support decriminalization and international research supports decriminalization. But we have both religious organizations and these radical feminist groups going around doing this. And I think it's important to note that they invade our workplaces. Uh, so they turn up, and I, it wouldn't be reasonable to do this in any other person's workplace. They turn up without making an appointment and knock on our doors, expect to be let in. Often workplaces are too afraid to turn them away um, because they'll call the police and say they suspect that we're being held against our will um, if we turn them away, and then we'll get a police raid. So... We let them in because we feel we have to. That's terrifying. Yeah, yeah that is. And look, That's I've been really in police raids that have been prompted when we've turned them away. Really? And it is terrifying. You get a whole bunch of armed That's police turn not, up at your workplace. That's, that's disgusting as well. Sorry. So these people that are claiming to be on your side are sending in the police because they can't get into your personal space. Yeah, um, and some workplaces don't understand that they can turn them away. Um, we feel that we, that we have to allow them entry. So... They're incredibly patronising. They're often handing out offensive propaganda, particularly religious groups hand out information that implies that we're morally deficient or unclean um, or in need of rehabilitation. Um, and yes, a lot of their behaviour is incredibly offensive. So what, what, how does the Vixen Collective deal with this? Are you, trying, are you taking some political action around it? Um, we're taking action all the time. There's actually been a series of public protests in regard to the Greens pre-selecting Kathleen Maltzen. Um And look, our community is very angry. There's been more than a decade of protest in regard to the issue because she was selected as a candidate for the Greens in 2010 and 2014. So the Greens presumably understand her history and know about it. So it seems like they might need to, to revisit their um, policies on sexuality and make sure and everyone... Pre-selection. Yeah, <laughs> and pre-selection. Yeah, pre-selection, I think. Yeah. Yes, um, and I make th- sure everyone understands. I, I think one of the interesting things that came up in regard to Grilled was that in less than 24 hours of sex workers protesting on social social media, um, 
they rectified the situation because we know from sex workers going into the restaurant in question that they'd removed the donations jar. Fantastic. Um, and yet the Victorian Greens and more than a decade of sex workers protesting haven't fixed the situation. <laughs> I think just comparing those mm. two things, <laughs> Fascinating. that a political party that has an, a public policy supporting our rights is still running a candidate that openly um, lobbies against our rights and yet a restaurant chain has managed to do the right thing in less than 24 hours. Wow. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I, uh, that is, um, I, I'm, I didn't realise that part had, uh, had happened, but um, that's Well, that, that's, 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 a, that's good news, <laughs> that is good news, and uh, it's been fantastic having Jane here this morning, yes. because I had no idea this was going on at all. So Jane, thank you so much for that, and uh, unfortunately we've got um, another interview yes, coming up. We've so. just about run out of time, but thank you very much for coming in, and just quickly, if anyone wants to find out about the Vixen Collective, including um, is it possible to donate to the Vixen Collective? Um, we are an unfunded organisation and we've been running, in our, we're into our 13th year of being an unfunded organisation, so we certainly wouldn't object to donations. Um, you can find out more about us on our website which is vixencollective.net and I'd also encourage people to follow us on social media. On Twitter we're at Vixen Collective um, and yet support sex worker rights, support us um, and join in. We'll be protesting right up to the Victorian election because we certainly don't think the Victorian Greens should be supporting our rights and policy no. and running a candidate that doesn't. Absolutely not. Thank you very much Jane. Thank you for having me. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Yarrabug Radio, 10 to 10.30, every Monday morning on 3CR Community Radio. All things to do with cycling in Yarra region and around Melbourne. Listen in. Well, there's been a lot in the news about the controversial Adani coal mine. Uh, it's been a focus, uh, become a focus of the Batman by-election coming up in March. And despite the reports on Adani's poor environmental record, and I, I find you know, this uh, fascinating, and, and lots of other problems uh, associated with the proposed mind, it seems to continue to enjoy support from both major parties. Last week it was reported that the Federal Environmental Department was not pro- has not prosecuted Adani for failing to, to disclose that its Australian chief executive was formerly the director of operations at a Zambian copper mine when it discharged toxic pollutants into a major river. And Danny is also in the Queensland planning and environmental court. So I've uh, invited Professor Samantha Hepburn, the director of the Centre for Energy and Natural Resources Law at Deakin University. I think she's on the line now. Are you there, Sam? 
Yes, I am. Thank you, Judith. And, uh, you, and uh, you've written an article for the conversation on the shortcomings in environmental approvals in Australia. So um, welcome to 3CR. And uh, I'm wondering if you can just uh, tell us a bit more about uh, the cases related to Adani that, that you used to highlight in adequacies in environmental yes. approvals. Yes, certainly. I mean, I think <clears throat> the overarching issue is whether we have significant monitoring of environmental conditions and whether we have a government that's prepared to take action when there's potentially um, you know, a criminal issue for breaching a failure to disclose. This is Australia's, you know, one of the biggest coal mines in the world adjacent to you know, we can call it a matter of national environmental significance as it's characterised under the National Environment Act, but it's 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 the Great Barrier Reef. It's our national treasure. And, you know, the the this the wetlands, the the whole region is so ecologically sensitive. So it's crucial and we need to emphasize this that we have powerful environmental approvals because you could argue at base, that the framework itself isn't necessarily effective. So if we are going to use the framework, then the framework needs to be implemented very rigorously. Now, the two breaches that you alluded to, the first being the failure to disclose, it is actually um, required under the Federal Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, EPBC for short, um, that there be uh, disclosure regarding um, the activities and certainly any um, potential action that um, the, uh, obviously, Jayakuma Janakaraj, the Director of Operations at the Zambian Copper Mine, Coca-Cola, uh, had potentially been involved with um, in 2010 uh, highly acidic metal-laden discharge was was um, released into the Kafu River, one of the largest of the Zambian waterways. Now, I've just to interrupt um, you there. So you're saying allegedly. Uh, so it's it's not that clear that uh, he was involved. Well, the, well, he was. What is clear is that he was definitely um, the director of operations at that time. I see. So yes. he has clear responsibilities as the director and potentially also fiduciary responsibilities and that is the subject of litigation in the High Court in London where it has been argued that um, you know the, the pollution has made the surrounding community ill um, and devastated farmland so quite a powerful issue and that um, was not disclosed it was not disclosed the federal government uh, department of environment investigated that and i think we've discovered from the investigation that um, there were potential negligence concerns relating to that um, apparently they issued a caution they decided that it wasn't in the public interest to uh, prosecute for negligence in that context. So, so they didn't throw the book um, at, at Adani for they this? Did, they did not throw the book at it because of the concern that they didn't have the evidence. Right. That's I what see. I can okay. work out. Yes. And that therefore means that they issued a caution. That's what the report says. And in issuing a caution, Adani then has suggested that they never received that caution. 
So something's going on there. I mean, what begs belief is that that wasn't clearly reviewed and evaluated, given, obviously, the controversy associated with the development of the dining. Yes, indeed. You mean here in Australia? Yes, in Australia, absolutely. Mm. So that's an enormous shortcoming and you know ultimately if we look we Australia has a public resource framework the resources belong to the public the, the, the government licenses out the right to exploit coal and the idea is that they're acting this might be you know a stretch but the ultimate idea is that they're acting for the benefit of the public so you know failure to disclose lack of transparency um, you know, how is that being investigated and monitored? Yes, and, um, and uh, indeed it seems like uh, Danny's been quite bold here. I mean, they seem not to be worried about it because if you were trying to get a project that big through, I would think you would be meticulous about these kinds of things. Well, I would agree with that. But then on the other hand, potentially they were concerned that that might be an impediment um, and do nothing until asked. You know, yes, and that would make until, sense too, yes. Yes, and then of course there's the other big controversial issue of the um, breach of the temporary emission licence issued by the Queensland Department uh, with respect to the Abbott Point um, coal water. Um, now apparently coal water was released um, under what's known as a temporary emissions licence to assist with the tropical cyclone. Um, it was a stormwater release. Um, now, the department says that they did monitor it um, and that they decided that it didn't, you know, there was a small breach and so $12,000 or something was yeah, the penalty. Yeah, I mean, a pocket money for Adani, $12,000. pocket money, exactly. Yeah. And then the Environmental Defender's Office said that um, they were unsure how they found that small breach, given that there didn't appear to be a clear monitoring of the discharge. Right. So I suppose the concern here, given the back potential background uh, of exactly that type of issue, is um, how rigorously is this being monitored. Now, there's no doubt that the department has you know, undertaken some monitoring, but is it rigorous enough? Is there a problem with the, the possible obfuscation of this issue under a temporary emission license and it's such a fragile area the wetlands yes so you know there, there are real concerns at a very early stage about how this project is going to proceed i mean <clears throat> one of the other issues here around the adani mine is it also affects the Great Artesian Basin, which mm. um, the groundwater, I think is, I don't know if groundwater is the right word, but the, the basin, which actually That's affects correct. three different states, you know, so three, it, it, yes. it's truly uh, a national you, project. Yes. It's truly, an, and they have an, un, so they've been issued an unlimited license to use groundwater for 60 years. I find that, so. I find that unbelievable in a country mm. in which is so dry. An arid landscape. Yes. And we've seen the problems in South Africa. You know, We, we yes. have concerns with these sorts of... And we don't necessarily know what sort of impacts you can have, as you said, on interconnected um, 
groundwater aquifers and so forth. So there, that's obviously a concern. And I think probably uh, the, the framework concerns relate to whether we're approaching this in the right way. And, and the article was really trying to raise some of these broader concepts that we seem to be issuing licenses and then, you know, so issuing an approval pursuant to a bilateral process. So the idea is that... Um, and when you say bilateral, you're talking about federal and state. Federal and state. Sorry, yes, yes. Which, which should be, you know, doubly protective, but it doesn't seem to be working that way. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there's obviously the vagaries of government administration, especially at the political level. You've actually got um, a pro-project process, and in most times there's heavy reliance upon environmental groups to scrutinise federal decisions. Um, and, you know, the most common assessment process is on the basis of preliminary document that's actually submitted by the project proponent, and in this case, Adani. Yes. So, uh, you know, the, the problem is that it's not necessarily double, you know, uh, reinforcement. Um, it, it really is... Um, I mean, to, to get the bilateral agreement through... The state processes have to be equivalent or better than the Commonwealth processes. But yes. That doesn't necessarily mean the processes are, are effective in the first place. Yes, indeed. And uh, um, Samantha, Sam, we're going to have to wind it up there, but I just want to thank you so much, first of all, for coming on to the show this morning and secondly for the article in the conversation last week and it came out last Thursday it's just a very clear article and it raises, uh, you know, brings our attention to things that we need to be thinking about particularly right now with the by-election coming up and uh, you know, the advocacy uh, you know, and the advocates opposing the mine and yeah, I mean I can't believe that it's still there almost as a project. Oh, it's hard to believe and of course what we're seeing now are all the issues associated with the issuance of a licence and monitoring yes. apparently rigorous environmental conditions and we are also seeing issues of public interest and transparency coming out which yes. is crucial for Australia. And uh, so we're going to put your article on our website so that people who are listening who want to read it can do that. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the program this morning. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And uh, that was uh, Professor Samantha Hepburn, who's from Deakin School of Law and also is, uh, oh, sorry, I'm losing all my bits of paper, but also, yeah, thank, bringing us up to date on some of the issues that we need to be thinking about in relation to the Adani mine. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. 3CR Wednesday breakfast, just about out of time, heading for a top of 30 degrees today. And thank you for uh, listening in this morning. Thank you to all of our guests. Uh, Jamie Gardner from Liberty Victoria. Uh, we also spoke with Fiona Patton from the Reason Party, also a member of the Legislative Council. Uh, Jane uh, from the Vixen Collective. Uh, and finally there. Uh, Professor Sam Hepburn, and she's, uh, from, she's the director of the Centre for Energy and Natural Resources Law at Deakin University. Stick Together is up next on 3CR and plenty more programs across the day. Do not forget to head to the website 3cr.org.au for plenty of information about anything you hear uh, on this station and it's also the place where you can subscribe if you wish, uh, donate, find out uh, all the events that are going on uh, and, and get a copy of the, uh, of the, of the list of shows that 
that we've got on uh, on 3CR. Please enjoy your Wednesday. We'll be back next week, uh, and Paddy will hopefully be better from his sausage roll. He will. He will, <laughs> and he'll be here. <laughs> yes. See you later.